I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the As Told by Nomads podcast, where you'll learn how nomads, third culture kids, entrepreneurs, and leaders all over the world embrace their global identity and use their difference to make a difference. And now, having lived on four different continents, here's your host, Tyo Roxy. Welcome to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's episode is with Paul McLinden, who yeah. describes himself as an author, as a conductor, and as a globe uh, trotter. But today's episode is really about how culture connects the world and the different connectors mm-hmm. that we can use to to help male uh, really make a better world. And we're gonna be talking about extreme innovative leadership, but. Before I go on a ramble, a ramble, ramble, let's have Paul come on the show and introduce himself. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. So I, I remember when you reached out to me and you described yourself as uh, you know, the music director of the National Youth Orchestra of um, Iraq. And then you yeah. sent me a TED, TEDx Talks and I was, I was jumping off my seat because everybody knows that listens to the show, if you followed the show from the beginning, I, the, my view on what building the next set of global leaders looks like is if we can effectively learn how to communicate across cultures. That was really the premise of the podcast. And you here you are talking about the different ways you can do that with culture, with music, with internet. And I it was like, he's way more articulate than I am. But I'm glad that he's doing it on such a global level because I wish more people focused in that. So I, I guess before we get into that, I just want to talk about how you got into the being that director of National Youth Orchestra of Iraq, and then we can talk about some of the things that you've learned from being there. Yeah, sure. I mean, it began for me about a week after Lehman Brothers crashed in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was in Edinburgh eating fish and chips in a pub um, and flicking through the newspaper. I was coming back to Edinburgh to see my father coming out of hospital. And I lived in Germany at the time. I now live back in Scotland. And uh, I noticed this headline. I mean, this was a copy of the Glasgow Herald lying on the table next to me that somebody else had left. And the headline read, Iraqi teen seeks maestro for youth orchestra. And I thought to myself, that really stuck out like hugely for me because I I am a conductor. And there was this uh, girl, it transpires, 
Zuhal Sultan, who was 17 years old at the time. She was living in Baghdad. She was a pianist working with the Iraqi National Symphony Orchestra, and she wanted a National Youth Orchestra of Iraq, uh, which makes sense on a lot of levels because there were, and still are, talented young musicians in Iraq uh, who are playing Western classical music and who have no teachers and who don't play together simply because it's too dangerous for them to or because their cultures within Iraq separate them. Mm. So she had reached out through a reality TV company, Raw Television, which does social entrepreneurship TV programs for British television. And they took her on as their international project and sent this press release out to British newspapers on her behalf. And the only newspaper that picked it up was the one I was reading on the table. Um, so I contacted her through the TV company and have very strong connections with the British Council who um, are paid for by our foreign office here in Britain to do cultural diplomacy. And so I connected with her in Baghdad by Skype, and I was sitting in an internet cafe in Cologne, and we talked about all the possible ways we could do this. And she's hugely intelligent, very articulate. Um, and she chose me as the music director. So then it was her and myself and the British Council, who have offices in Iraq, working together to try and create the very first summer camp of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq in Iraq. And then when you, when you, when you first got that news, how did you feel? Uh, it took <laughs> me a while to sink in uh, because it's very easy to mm -hmm. speak into a computer and talk Skype and send emails. But it's very difficult when you're leading in a virtual environment or when you're project managing, which is what this basically was, right. to really grasp what the realities on the ground are. You know, the map is not the territory. Hmm. And so um, I was trying to grasp nuggets of information about her reality and the reality of her young friends who would become the first players in this orchestra, what they were dealing with coming out of a war in Iraq that still wasn't safe back in 2008, um, what they were dealing with in terms of the quality of instruments, which is why we used YouTube to get them to video their music playing so that I could choose the players, um, and the whole issue of why this was important to Iraqis. Um, we are so far removed from Iraq culturally, and all we get is negativity. Uh, from one way or another, it's going to be to do with geopolitics or terrorism or war. None of us actually really know who Iraqis are. Um, so I felt that I had a burning question in me to try and extract this information through the internet and then eventually face-to-face -face with the orchestra about who the people are that we keep hearing about that we have no idea about. Hmm. The, the reason why you, your particular story is fascinating to me is the fact that in Iraq, you've got you know, Sunnis, Shiites, Kurds, um, and Ar Arabs, right? You've got all, yeah. these, all these sects of people in a nation, and, and everyone is basically you know, staying to their own way. I, I like to call this people erecting... Um, you know, the imaginary Berlin walls because they think my way is better than the other way. And, and because of that, they don't want to work together. Now, here you are as this conductor 
who is the Nas- of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq, who is bringing all these people together. I- I- I'm just curious as to w- what those experiences were like, because I-, I imagine you had to wear many hats. I imagine you had to use some interpreters. I imagine there were some problems um, that you didn't yeah. foresee happening. But I'm just ima- I'm just curious as to how you connected every one of those uh, different sects of people. Well, first of all, the imaginary Berlin walls are not imaginary at all. There are, in fact, high walls through Baghdad, which separate Sunni and Shia districts. Mm. Um, But in terms of bringing people together, we used the Kurdistan region of Iraq, which was and still is one of the safest parts of Iraq. It's still not absolutely safe, but considerably better than elsewhere. Um, And what we noticed straight away was that we had auditioned, as I said, Young musicians, when I say young, between 18 and 25 years old, uh, to join the, the first National Youth Orchestra of Iraq, 33 of them. And they all loved classical music in a country that has zero context for them, and a country which cannot and doesn't want to offer any support for them in terms of that. So their bound love, their, their unique passion for music broke down a lot of barriers that otherwise would normally be there. Because when you're all sitting down in an orchestra following the conductor, then you're focused on making music together. And it's a really intense, intimate experience. Anybody who's ever been in a youth band or orchestra will tell you just how much of a thrill it is and how life-changing and what a terrific memory those times are. Uh, But in terms of the hardcore of communication across cultures. We had a lot of Kurds in the orchestra. We had a lot of Arabs in the orchestra. Maybe about 30% could speak English. The Kurds couldn't speak Arabic. The Arabs couldn't speak Kurdish. So I was standing conducting the orchestra, and when I had to say something, there was a Kurdish translator to my left repeating everything I said in Sorani Kurdish. That's crazy. Yeah, then an Arabic translator on my right, repeating everything I said in Iraqi Arabic. Um, and they were trilingual. They, could, they were fluent in English, Kurdish, and Arabic in order to get the point across, because sometimes it, it just can't only be conducting. There were, we also had a team of tutors from America and Britain and Germany. And so they needed translators to make sure that the young musicians, who had never, in many cases, had a teacher or a proper lesson in their lives uh, and were self-taught um, could grasp the concepts of basic technique mm. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I'm still I'm trying to picture myself in your, in your position and I, I just you know even as the son of a diplomat I've never really been in those situations where y- you have just such different cultures I mean I've been in there where it's like one or two but you had three distinct cultures or more and, and it's and I've got to commend you, interpreter, your interpreters, as well as you mm. for conducting that, because that must have been quite the experience. So, the question that immediately comes up to comes up here is: mm. with music, obviously, it's one of those universal connect, connectors. You, you can play a certain song that that is a cultural phenomenon here or anywhere else, and you know, some people that don't even speak the language just start singing and jumping up around if it's something that's that big. Yeah. I, I and if you go back to history, you know, you talk to you talk about Beethoven, uh, you know, Hayden and all these people, Schubert, all these people mm-hmm. that that there were huge conductors in the past. Is there a correlation with what they did then to connect uh, across cultures to what you do right now? 
I think very definitely. Uh, back in the time of Mozart, Bach, Haydn, Beethoven, these guys were already international travelers. They could speak a number of different languages. In fact, they, they had to write opera in a number of different languages, whether it be German or Italian, for example. So they were international uh, not stars, some of them, but they were definitely uh, mobile throughout Europe and earning a living like traveling musicians would, uh, going from court to court to court. Uh, and music uh, is, of course, that universal language that connects everybody together. Now, what I would say is we're now living in the 21st century where music is hugely accessible. Um, but we have to ask the question, what is the point of an orchestra? Uh, it was a big thing 100, 200 years ago. But what is the role of it now? And I would say orchestral music has gotten into the world's DNA, cultural DNA, so much that we can't really escape it. We hear it accompanying films, playing film scores. We hear it in pop songs. We hear it in advertisements. Mm -hmm. We hear it in lifts, elevators. Um, and it's just one of those things that has spread throughout the world over a period of 100, 200 years and which every kind of composer and every culture of composer writes for. And so it was very accessible to the young musicians in Iraq. They could hear a lot of orchestral music on YouTube even if they couldn't hear a live orchestra. Um, and so really it was my job to physically bring these young people together. And you're right, it was more than just Kurdish and Arab. There were Armenians, mm. there were other forms of Christians, there were um, Assyrians, um, all living in Iraq and trying their best to make music. Um, and th there was no barrier from the Sunni-Shia point of view because they were all going to music schools uh, as such as they were, where everybody just made music regardless of their background. The minute they left those schools, those divisions came back up again. Mm. Um, so we had a number of challenges to face to, to do with intercultural communication and to do with trust, because, for example, the Kurds and the Arabs had a lot of bad history between each other, not just Sunni and Shia. Um, but at the same time, I think the hunger to learn and the hunger to make that first concert happen in 2009 was so great that they just got down to it. And, you know, they were as scared as I was, but they pushed through the fear and made that first concert happen. And this, this could only have happened if they had been able to at least access music through YouTube, through SoundCloud, and to be able to teach themselves through online resources such as YouTube masterclasses. Uh, so it's a different game now, classical music. So much of it is online and accessible. Um, and so many people who would never otherwise touch it are interested. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I, I think what's interesting, what you did, is that you created those new interactive tools uh, you know, through Skype video editions and YouTube channel, which is the benefit of living in the globalized and digitalized world today. And the, so I, I know you're about to say something, but the thing that I always say is that even though we live in a globalized and digitalized world, many of mm. us don't act global or digital. Why do That's you, true. Yes. Why do you think that is that? Why do you think people do that? Why do you think people miss out on that opportunity and that connection? That's a really good question. We're we're we have all the tools we need to connect globally and internationally. Um, I think, from my own personal point of view. Even though I grew up in a small town in Scotland, 
I always had a hunger to explore. And I think one of your previous podcasters has talked about, uh, you know, a culture gene, a desire to explore, to get out. Yes. Uh, many people don't have that hunger. And it is a hunger inside of you. You have to really want to get out into the world. For example, here in Europe, uh, a good example is very many people here in Britain are facing a referendum about whether or not to leave the European Union, um, which will happen very soon. And the question for us is, are we European or not? The truth is, you can't be European if you stay in your own little town all the time and maybe have two weeks holiday in the south of Spain every year. That doesn't make you European. Um, it, you have to get out. You have to cultivate Europeanness, just as, as you have to cultivate being a global citizen. And on one level, having the world come to your laptop or your iPhone or your TV set is one way to look at this. But another way to look at this, which is actually much more deeper and meaningful, in my opinion, is to learn another language or to get out into another continent and take a job there um, or to do something long term in a development project in Africa. Whatever it takes, there are plenty of opportunities now available to young people using budget airlines, using the mobility that they have with their passports and at relatively little cost to explore and interact with other cultures that may not speak their language, may not understand where they come from. Uh, but it still requires that, that kick, that desire to cultivate being a global citizen, or in my context, to cultivate being a European. So you know, there's just so many things to peel out of there. Many times I get asked, how do I stay global even though I have never traveled? And there are many opportunities to do that with the internet. You know, like for example, mm -hmm. everybody I believe is a media, media company. You know, when, when this podcast was launched, the idea was to educate the world on what it's like to live in a global world and just embrace the global identity and talk to people from different yeah. parts of the world. And what happens is this reaches so many people, right? And you get emails and that kind of thing. And then you can learn from their perspectives and that type of things. I think you're, what you're saying that to take it to the next level is embedding yourself in other people's culture so you can see, open your mind and see things from their perspective, whether it's learning a language to allow you to gain access into another, another culture, whether it's physically being somewhere just to understand some of the cultural nuances, whether it's getting comfortable being uncomfortable just so you understand what, what it's like for them to live there or even taking on volunteer projects in several continents just so you can see what the grassroots deal with and also learn more about yourself. I think a lot of what happens with with global leadership that's missing today is the fact that people forget that, you know, growing is, a, is, a, is it's an evolve, you know, it's an evolutionary thing. You know, people are always going to evolve and you have to explore the different aspects of who you are and you stifle that curiosity in yourself. You limit yourself from being the best leader you can be. And, you know, and, and what happens is, you know, you have people running for presidential elections that maybe shouldn't be running for presidential elections because they're, <laughs> they're, not, they're not equipped to understand what it's like to live in a global world. So I, I, I'm a big fan of what you're saying. And one of the things I look for when I'm looking at leadership books right now is people can actually grasp that concept because we're not living in the world that it was 20 to 50 years ago. Now it's a world that's a digital village and one has to know how to navigate all those nuances and the, and the different uh, differences, really, in the, in, in the villages. Absolutely. And what I would add to that, uh, and you've touched on it already anyway, is that 
the personal exploration, personal development side of being a global citizen isn't really some soft, woolly, um, added extra to existence. It's absolutely at the core of, being, of becoming globally competent in a world that we live in now, which is always going to become more complicated. But I think it's essential to at least find out who you are as a cultural person in order to be able to stand on your own personal, sound, secure ground to know that you have these limitations and these potentials, and that helps you an awful lot to relate to other people with their limitations and potentials too. Uh, it's very easy to come across and say, I'm a global citizen because I like other cultures. But you've actually got to start by saying, what are the frames of reference of my own and where might I come again, up against problems in myself? Um, and it's some of the most globally comfortable people I've met have been very Scottish, very English, very American, very German, simply because they're comfortable with themselves, and then they don't really have a problem dealing with a frame of reference with somebody else. Yeah, and that's that, <laughs> such a great point. You're raising so many great points here. When someone says become a global citizen, it doesn't necessarily mean lose your identity. It just actually means embrace it more. I, I said mm. the podcast is embracing your global identity. You know, I came from a background of um, compulsory moves because of my dad's job. And my yeah. my biggest issue initially growing up was I just was trying to figure out who I was within all these cultures because I would always move and have to adapt. And it wasn't until I was 16, 17 that I realized that I kept adapting to other people's cultures so I could fit in. And what I wasn't doing was adapting, was creating my own culture, which actually fused every single one of those. Which you know, which is why when someone says third culture kid, that's really important to me because it's really yeah. not telling you that it's not dictating what you should be. It's actually you dictating what your background would be. And I think that global citizen world um, word has been thrown out but not defined appropriately many times. It's that you can still be you. It's just like you said, find that frame of reference. And if you're a diplomat or you are an educator, you go to this environment and you, you see something from a different perspective and then you you know you just adapt to that but still maintain who you are. Like I can keep my corny sense of humor usually across the mm -hmm. culture but I, I you know i can temper it down depending on, on the situation so i think um maybe some people feel like if they they open their mind they're, they're losing like uh, the essence of their culture and and I, I think that misses the point i absolutely agree with you um and I, I would add that i mean third culture kids is an area of growing research now because there are so many more of them um spending two years of your life here two years of your life there and so I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
so on and so forth, um, may well and does, of course, transform your identity. Uh, but the, the trick, of course, is to simply, as you said, play the right card at the right time from your experience um, and to learn to trust your instincts, yes. that, uh, that you're, you're not going to have all the answers, but you're also going to continually learn and become more flexible. I think that's what an awful lot of companies find out about the uh, third culture kids who become adults yeah. and employees, that they're great for going into China or Taiwan or wherever else and doing a couple of years there where they're very flexible and very aware of the issues. And then they might bring in a more experienced um, and grounded manager for the next phase. Mm. Um, but for the initial startup phase, uh, third culture individuals, people who've developed kind of acrobatic skills whilst not losing who they are, um, are very, very gifted to the global economy. No, absolutely. And speaking of global economy, you wrote a book that ties in all this together. Uh, I don't know. I think it's called Upbeat. <laughs> yes, it's called Upbeat, the story of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq. Yes, and I love that title, Upbeat, the story of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq. And, you know, Sir Peter Maxwell Davis says this about the book. It says, the great adventures of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq deserves not only to be recorded for posterity, but also to serve as an example of how the essential can survive catastrophe. Why did you write the book, sir? Um, I wrote the book for a couple of very good reasons. Um, first of all, we attempted very, very bravely and with all our might to get to America in 2014 to do a tour there. Um, and that tour fell through. We didn't get on the plane. And there were a number of very complex reasons for that, but certainly the overriding reason was that the, the, the ISIL, the Islamic State, was cutting the country in half at the time. Um, and so we were faced with a perfect storm. Uh, and 2015 was really the year for me of deep and dark depression because I'd lost my baby. That I'd poured absolutely everything into this over a period of six years to keep it alive. And it was gone. Mm. So I've, I felt in myself a real need to sit down and get this whole story out for myself to just look back on it and to reflect on it and to ask myself, well, what did I actually learn from that? What can I get out of this that will help me to move on into the next phase of my life? And what can I communicate to others to answer the core question that I had at the very start back in 2008? Who are the Iraqis? Because now I've spent six years working with them and I had a very good idea of the wonderful, highly committed, highly talented young people in Iraq and I wanted to tell people about that. So there are a number, there are so many different angles in the book, some of which I've tried to explore, such as the reconciliation through music, such as the social entrepreneurship aspect, such as intercultural communication, but also just the plain story. I just want the story to be good so that people enjoy reading it. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, I just wanted to try to bring myself personally to a point where I could say, I've learned enough to be able to communicate what I've learned to other people, little nuggets of wisdom or insight here or there, and now I can move on with my life. And <laughs> what, what, one of the things that I'm picking up from what you're saying is, you know, you, in one of your articles, you wrote that books on uh, leadership are thick on the shelves, but when you took on musical directorship, 99% of your leadership was online. And for this, there's little little guidance. You know, you, you said you've got years of fundraising, video editions, Visa, and project management, and you even burned through four laptops 
and this is interesting, a thousand, a thousand cups of coffee. But um, you did all this, and you're so right. And I was, was talking to you earlier about my frustration is the fact that global leadership or leadership in general is not talked about in a 21st century mindset a lot of the, a lot of the time. And and I, when you say there's no guidance for online leadership, that immediately you know um, you know piques my attention because that's exactly what I'm trying to do with a lot of the media platforms. So. How do you build that online trust? Uh, I think with in regard to all the projects I've done in the past as a conductor where I've worked internationally and all the projects I've done with the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq, it just comes down to one simple sentence. If you promise something, deliver it. <laughs> it's really that simple. Because if you promise something online and you don't deliver it, there's no way for you to ever recover that level of trust. People will just switch you off and go to another online person. Um, so it was very, very important within the context of Iraq, where there was such distrust between uh, Arabs and Kurds, largely because they couldn't speak each other's language. That would have helped. Um, but also because uh, there was an awful lot of, and there still is, a huge amount of corruption in Iraq. And young people had been promised these big projects by various uh, charities and non-governmental organizations and governments, and they'd never actually materialized because all the money had gone down the back pocket of some government official or politician. And so they were totally disillusioned. They didn't know how they could rebuild their lives. And I was intensely aware of how let down they had already been, not just by, by the war, but by their own um, elders and betters. Right. Uh, and so it was important for me to say to them that if I was going to promise something like a summer course in Iraq or like a visit to Germany, like we did in 2011, uh, that I actually delivered that. And then, of course, they didn't see all the work that we put into. And I had an amazing collection of people working with me. We, they didn't see all the blood, sweat and tears behind the scenes to deliver that promise. But I knew if I broke my promises the whole thing would be finished because it was such a fragile sense of trust in the first place. Trust is a big deal. So I don't know if you know where I'm from. I'm from Nigeria. And Nigeria, like Iraq, is very oil rich um, mm. and very, very natural resources rich. But, you know, you come to the country, it's still the highest GDP, but you come to the country and you see a lot of times they say 70% of people live in abject poverty. And it doesn't make any sense, honestly. But it's the mm. same sort of politics that like you're saying in Iraq, where a lot of the money that should be going to the constituents goes to the back pockets of certain government officials. And that creates a lack of trust in the youth and the people coming on there because they're so used to hearing people run for elections and then promise this and then either rig the elections to their favor and just do what they want to do and put them and you know, stuff their pockets up with, with, with money. And they become so jaded and like, you know, you saying you're going to do something, it's almost something that's routinely heard by them. So for them, actions speak louder than words. Now, totally. yeah. it, it, the problem, though, that, that, that I've seen, like, it's just trying to convince them of what, what you're saying is because you can say all you want to say, but it's a matter of doing what you want to do. And I, I often wonder, because in Nigeria, you also have the, um, you know, some, some, interest in actions going on with some extremists. I always wonder what the best way to solve these problems are. Nigeria is 50% Muslim, 40% Christian, very, very diverse, over 300 different mm. languages. Um, yeah. It sounds like Iraq has got similar, similar, similar things there. 
What, in your opinion, is the best way to to help solve some of these problems? I know there's no one size fit all, but I, I you haven't lived there. I'm curious as to what you think is one way that would go a long <laughs> way to solving at least alleviating some of these problems that you keep hearing because this the portrayal of what is there sometimes does not match the news. So I, I'm well, curious. absolutely. Um, I think the first thing you drew was a parallel between Nigeria and Iraq, both oil-rich countries. And when you have a, a lot of natural resource that makes a lot of, well, a small group of people very rich, um, then you have what's called the resource curse, uh, which is that people tend to just get very lazy. Um, and one of the things that my players in Iraq tell me is that they can't wait for the oil to run out. Um, because then Iraqis will actually have to work for their living. Hmm. Um, and there's an inbuilt laziness in the culture of countries that tend to be oil-rich, which is a huge problem. Um, and around that comes a lot of mis- distrust. There's no really need. There's no real need to be transparent. There's no real need to raise taxes because the oil's there to pay for everything. Now, of course, technology will overtake oil. Um, as one great oil magnate said, the Stone Age didn't end for lack of stone. Eventually, even with the oil in the ground, technology will ignore it. Um, but the issue comes down to transparency of journalism, the ability for journalists in these countries to criticize uh, public servants and politicians. It comes down to governments making tra- uh, transactions more transparent and becoming more accountable. Um, And it also comes down to the way in which the very core of family works in society. For example, in Iraq, family is something of a mafia. I don't know what it's like in Nigeria, but there's a tremendous connectivity of who gets the job, who gets this opportunity, who gets this amount of money. It's down to family ties. It's tribal. Mm -hmm. Um, And The reason that family is so strong is partly to do with Arab culture, that's historic, but it's also partly to do with families not trusting governments to deliver basic services, public services like clean water, electricity. Uh, And so you fall back on who you know. You fall back on your tribe, your clan, in order to keep you safe and in order to protect you against chaotic environmental circumstances like terrorism, like uh, poor delivery of natural, uh, of public services. Um, But the the core problem with Iraq isn't actually just corruption, it's accountability. Because, you know, people are publicly corrupt in Iraq. It's transparently corrupt. Um, People don't have a problem with the fact that politicians have photographs of their living rooms covered with millions of Iraqi dinars. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's to- you know, it's, I- it's, it's, totally, it's totally transparent how corrupt they are. Um, but there, there is no accountability. Nobody does anything about this. Nobody prosecutes anybody for this. Um, and so the rule of law has to be strengthened as well. And to be honest with you, there have been a couple of Uh, high-profile cases in Iraq of people being thrown in jail for corruption. Uh, But this is usually because they didn't have a strong enough militia behind them protecting them um, or because they knew too much about something else and it was quicker to get rid of them in that way. So uh, you've got to really look at the way in which society is constructed. Uh, And if you jump over to China, for example, you're looking at Guanxi. Now, 
by Western standards, Guanxi, the system of the extended family network funding business, uh, that's corruption by our terms. But from a Chinese perspective, it's just good business practice. So we're doing business with China. We don't care about Guanxi. And the Chinese are happy to carry on with their system of doing things. Do you call that corruption or do you just turn a blind eye and get on with doing business with the Chinese? It's a difficult question of who's got the power. Uh, well, you know, I was laughing earlier because that's exactly how a lot of the things that are in Nigeria. Everybody knows, you know, you, know, you, you see the governors and everyone with like one of like six Rolls Royces in the world. And you know, and it's, it's plastered in the magazines and you already know like, wow, that's where the money went. And it, yeah. it's, it's right there. But what you said was transparency, rule of law, and, and you know, responsible digital journalism, really. I, 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 for me, it was I, I want to you know, make an impact. So I've always said I'm going to use media and private sector to actually do that. And mm -hmm. just because I felt like there's so much red tape with, with the government and all that. And I think the more you start to tell the right stories, the more you start to, to you know, create some sustainable business environments, you start to give uh, a little, you know, the youth more hope, you know, that there, there is possibility for something better. And, and I think hopefully by doing that, you can start to sort of break down some of these barriers of distrust that have been built in over generations. And it's, it's, it's a generational thing. It's, you know, your parents will tell you this. I, you know, coming from a certain tribe in Nigeria, you, you have you, certain stereotypes that people have of other tribes. And it's just, you know, it can be dangerous or it can just be jovial. But it's one of those things that I think people should be very careful about in terms of telling their stories because then the generation beyond uh, beyond them starts to think the same thing and then that trust only grows distrust only grows so i think finding the best way to use internet to communicate the right messages and also delivering on promises will, will go a long way but uh, mm -hmm. i i mean i i honestly feel like private sector and media is definitely some of the best ways to actually help break down the barriers and the government absolutely yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think the issue of entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship in particular are vital to foster in a number of uh, cultures around the world, not just our own. Simpl I don't know what Nigeria is like, but the average age of people in Iraq is 21. So it's wow. a hugely, hugely young country. And if you think of all these young people who are really not getting anywhere because they're running up against corruption all the time, you have a burning ferment of uh, you know, of distrust, of anger uh, from a lot of very uh, motivated young people who need to channel their energy in a more constructive way. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes, unfortunately, you know, they might channel in the wrong way because they feel like there's no way out, um, which, is, mm -hmm. which, is, which is not necessarily um, um, productive. So, okay. So, staying in that vein, what are some of the stereotypes about Iraq that aren't true? Um, stereotypes of Iraq... Obviously, the current one, which is that they're not all terrorists, yes. um, and that's that's obviously becoming a bigger stereotypical issue. I follow a number of the Twitter and Facebook accounts of uh, various Arab organizations in America who report 
on the, the stresses and strains they're facing on a daily basis now, dealing with Islamophobia in the United States, dealing with the, the discomfort of the way in which politics is evolving there. Um, and so that's, that's scary. Uh, and it all comes back to a perception of what somebody from the Arab world is. Yeah. Um, the second point is that um, the Arab world st- is stereotypically lazy. And I've pointed this out earlier. There are a number of problems with this because it can be perceived to be true, uh, partly because, and I'm very clear about this in Iraq, there's learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that if you've gone through dictatorship and war and more dictatorship and more war, then you just give up trying to do anything in that environment. You're constantly thwarted. Your ambitions, your visions, your dreams are constantly squashed by geopolitical strife, by whatever corruption we've talked about already. Um, but there are many disincentives to do something. But once you, you know, what's really tragic about my experience with Iraq is that when we got together and made music, they worked so incredibly hard and they produced unbelievable results in a very short time that no Western youth orchestra could even come close to Um, because, you know, somebody gave them a chance. Somebody gave them a break. Um, And that's what I'm proud of, that all we did was got together and run a, a normal youth orchestra summer camp, as normal as we could be under the circumstances. Um, but they went from zero to hero in two or three weeks. Um, you know, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, when I was a kid, I had connectors to fit into different cultures. For me, it was, it was sports, geography, and pop culture. It's funny when the World Cup comes around, everybody unites, or some Olympics or something like that, because people can understand that language. And they're all... Yeah connected and and bonded together and it's it's when that event goes everybody remembers the differences so mm-hmm. i i think you know finding those universal connectors like the internet like music, like uh, like sports are the key to what's really gonna actually bridge all the divides that we actually face today in today's world so i commend you for doing that and i um i really hope that we can start to make a dent in in our world by by fostering these uh, environments that allow that to happen. I absolutely agree. And I think I would, I would round off by saying my personal experience of working with the young people in Iraq, particularly using music as a reconciliation tool, it's just taught me the obvious thing, that it's really hard work to reconcile people. It's messy. It's very often very inefficient. And it's very ungrateful work. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you stop doing it, then you're doomed. You you just you're in a mess. And this is really what the uh, Iraq between 2009 and 14 was. It was a culture that tore itself apart, that did not try to reconcile. Um, uh, reconciliation work is 24 seven, and if you stop doing it, then you're going to feel the bad results. But if you keep doing it, and you're willing to pay the price of hard work and disappointment, uh, then it's worth doing. But you've got to stick at it. Absolutely. Now, this book, uh, this podcast is going to come out the same time your book comes out. So is that that's August 18th? August? Well, in America, it's September the 18th. It's one month later. It comes out ah. in Europe, August the 18th. All right, all right, all right. Okay, we'll, we'll, by the time this is out, it would have come out in one of those countries. So where, Fantastic. Where, where can we find the book? Um, the book will be 
uh, on Amazon.com after September the 18th, up to be the national story of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq. And for Amazon.co.uk and the rest of the world, um, it will be out on August the 18th. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, I, you know, I can't wait to, to really dive into it because these are, the, these are the conversations I like to have. I have these conversations all the time, and I used to just hear my mm. dad talk about this all the time growing up as, as a diplomat trying to foster all these, uh, these, these things. But before we leave, I always ask mm. my guests these questions. Okay. How do you use your difference to make a difference, Paul? I use my difference as a gay man to understand that I'm a minority. And I use that knowledge, that mm-hmm. wisdom of the minority to understand other minorities. Um, and that's one of the things that bound us together in Iraq, ironically. It's a very, very homophobic culture. But I used my own experience of growing up as a minority and being a minority to, to really understand how these people felt and to put all of our differences aside at the end of the day and make music. Love it, love it, love it. And I will put all this in the show notes. Where can people find you on Twitter and social media and everywhere? Uh, the Facebook site for the book is upbeat.book. Okay. And the Twitter account is upbeat underscore book. Okay, boom. We'll put it out there. And Paul, this is, this is amazing. I, I love your insights. Uh, I love your, your TEDx talks. I'll put that as well in the, in the show notes. And I just thank you, really, for for just reminding the world about what it truly is to live in a globalized and digital world today. I really, really am honored that you uh, took the time to talk to me, Tayo. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Absolutely. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to use your difference to make a difference, as well as for show notes, head over to www.uidmag.com. Till next time, go out and make an impact in your world.